I have the privilege of preaching the second to last message in our, uh, our series in Ephesians. Uh, if you're taking notes this morning, I'd, I'd have you please write down a higher Lord, a higher Lord. So I kind of want to just give a brief, brief, uh, brief recap. Um, the, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul is really, uh, he's, he's, trying to, he's trying to explain to the believer what we have been given. Someone say given. What we've been given in Christ. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. We could not have done it on our own. Everything that we have been given has been given to us in Christ and through Christ. Now, it's, it's an incredible, it's, especially the first three chapters, it's just, it's fant- it's incredible imagery. Uh, I mean, everything that God has given to us. And then in the fourth chapter, Paul begins to make a turn. Because the reality is, is that what has been given to you should change how you live. How many of you have ever been given a car? Did you keep walking to work? No, what you have been given changes your transportation status. If you receive something and it's real, it should change how you live. You know, I mentioned it in an earlier sermon, but I, I got to say it again. The truth is, is that if what we believe we have received about through uh, in Christ and through Christ has not changed how we behave, maybe we haven't received what we thought we received. Because what I have in Jesus should change everything about me. And that ultimately is the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians is Paul begins to turn a corner and, and, and in, the, in the light of what we know, how now should we live? We're going to get into kind of a, man, I, you know, I was kind of bummed out that I don't get to do the full armor of God. I, like, we're starting, the, the interesting thing about exegetical preaching is that it forces you to talk about things that you wouldn't normally talk about. The first part of this group of scriptures that we're gonna, that we're gonna hit today is like kind of one of those classic ones that your parents really throw at you when you're being bad. It's children obey your parents in the Lord. Don't you read the Bible? I'm sinner. <laughs> like we love that particular passage, but there's a, there's another passage connected to it that is really uncomfortable. We don't like to talk about it, and so we just sort of like and mumble our way through it. But we're going to talk actually quite a bit today. Uh, we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. I'm actually going to take the latter half of this group of scriptures and talk about it first, okay? So here's, here's how it goes. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord because I said so. Kind of. <laughs> it says because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have long life in the land. And every parent said amen. amen. Next, this is, the, this is the uncomfortable part. <laughs> Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with good with a good attitude. As to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Okay, so first I'm going to address the elephant in the room. Does the Bible promote slavery? The short answer is no, it does not. 
I'm, I'm going I'm to read for you a really brief article, like a, a portion of it from a pastor named Douglas Beck. Um, we're going to talk first about what was slavery in the Old Testament, and then we're going to talk about what was slavery in the Roman Empire. So I'm just actually going to read a little bit less than I, uh, uh, than I did in the, in the first service. You can thank me later. Um, before I get into that, though, let me ask you a question. How many of you love soda of any type? How many of you are healthier than that and you love LaCroix? <laughs> Just kidding. Sorry for all the soda guys. <laughs> okay, how many married people love their spouse? How many of you love your children? Do you notice that there's a difference between loving LaCroix and loving your child? I mean, I hope, right? Or else you've got a serious problem one way or the other. You either really love LaCroix or you really don't love your kid that much. So, but the thing is, when I say, oh man, you know what I love? I love Spindrift. If you don't know what Spindrift is, it's fancy LaCroix. It's LaCroix with actual fruit juice in it, not LaCroix that has been transported next to a semi that was holding fruit. Okay? <laughs> See, when I say I love Spindrift, I know in my mind, quantifiably, that I, even if in the same sentence, I say I love Spindrift and I love my wife, I know personally that I didn't equate the two. I might be using the same word, but they have a different weight to them, right? See, sometimes when we, when we read the Bible, we forget that it was translated into English from something else. Does anybody have a ballpark idea of how many words there are in the English language? If you were in the first service, you know this. Yeah, it's about 200,000. It's about 200,000 words in English. In Greek, there are, ancient Greek, I should say, there are nearly 2 million words. You want to know how many words there are in Hebrew? About 7,800 do you want to know the implications of that? That means if we are translating from the classic Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament is written in, if we are translating from the classic Hebrew into English, every single word that is written has nearly... I actually did the math earlier. Each word has a possible 2,500 words in English that could be used. See, when the Bible says love... It might mean a different kind of love than you think. When the Bible says slave, see, we have a very, very, like, concrete idea of what slavery means, but it's in our context. It's what I think slavery is. It's what I've seen historically in our nation, right? When I think slave, I think, didn't we fight a bloody civil war to get rid of this? So when sometimes I read in the Bible where, like, Paul or Peter, or Moses, or writing to the people of Israel about slavery, I wonder, how could a document that talks about a good God be talking about such a horrendous evil? Does that make sense? But what I want to talk about today as, as we're kind of getting into this, did I say a boat? I'm just around too many Canadians, I think. <laughs> Seriously, I've been doing that more. We're like, anyway, you guys don't even know that. <laughs> it's all good. I'll get prayed for later. Okay, so I'm going to read for you a, a, a brief portion of an article that, that is talking specifically about um, Old Testament slavery and New Testament slavery. So, just how similar 
Was Israelite slavery to our conception of the institution that bears the same name? Not much. Consider first that Israelite slavery was entirely voluntary. Exodus 21.16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Found among the earliest cluster of slave laws, this speaks directly to the issue of slavery and forbids anything resembling a slave trade among the ancient Israelites. This verse alone should make it clear that slavery in the Old Testament law is vastly different than anything that we commonly associate with slavery. By contrast, Leviticus 25, 39, and 47 speak of the poor Israelite as selling himself into servitude suggesting what we will soon discover, that Israelite slaves were debt servants, not human chattel, deprived of freedom and basic rights. The fourth commandment even requires that slaves enjoy the Sabbath along with their masters. Thus, any passage that speaks of masters as buying Hebrew servants should be understood that they are referring to a voluntary act in which the slave was not sold by another, but sold his own labor to another Israelite. How many of you have ever paid down a debt by doing work for someone. That's slavery in Scripture. Now, you may not see it that way because for you, and for me for that matter, what I think is, actually, no, I'm, you know, if I'm worth $25 an hour and I owe you $400, I'm going to work for you for yay amount of hours to pay down my debt. But this is the kind of slavery that we're actually talking about in the Old Testament. And it was voluntary. A person who owed money and realized they couldn't pay it said, okay, well, I'll just come to work for you. You're going to take care of me until I pay down this debt. And then the, the, the reality was is that even if it was a debt that was wild or out of control, all debt, or excuse me, all slavery in the Old Testament was temporary. You could not be held a slave for longer than seven years. So even if you owed somebody a hundred million dollars, when you hit that seventh year of indentured servitude, it didn't matter how much you had left to repay, your debt was paid. Like I said, this actually, slavery in the Old Covenant is actually a lot more like what we would call indentured servitude. In fact, a lot of the early settlers that came to America, because they were, generally speaking, they were poor, they were downtrodden, and they had no money, they couldn't afford the trip over. So what they do? They became indentured servants, where they worked the land for a certain period of time in order to pay for their passage. Now, slavery, I've got to say this, slavery in the Roman Empire was almost a social necessity. Imagine an entire, an entire system that is built on slaves. Let me put it to you this way. Does anybody, well, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer. We don't need to get into a history debate here, guys, okay? I'm going to tell you why Rome conquered the world. They didn't conquer the world for the glory of Rome like they said they did. They didn't conquer the world because they believed that everyone else were barbarians and they needed Roman culture, like they said they did. You want to know why they really conquered the world? Money. How do you conquer a territory? By bringing an army and defeating the army that's already there. How do you keep a territory? By continuing to recruit soldiers. See, what Rome had was they had a vicious cycle, for lack of a better term, where every time that they would conquer a new territory, because they had to pay the soldiers they already had. 
So their initial conquest was for the gold to pay for the soldiers that they recruited so that they could go kill something. But after that, as their, as their, as their acquisitions became larger and larger and larger, they had to recruit and conscript more and more and more soldiers. All of a sudden, nobody's manning the farms. So what do you do? You have slaves work the farms. And it's an endless cycle of conquer, recruit, pay, conquer, recruit, and pay. If they had stopped, the whole system would have collapsed. Estimates say that of the Roman population, as many as 15 to 20 percent were slaves. At its height, the Roman Empire, it's, it's a little bit difficult to tell like all the historical stuff, but at its height, the Roman Empire had somewhere between 55 million and 95 million people in the empire itself. So let's say that, let's just shoot right in the middle at 80. If there were 80 million people in Rome, there were nearly 20 million slaves. Does anybody in the room know where Christianity spread first and fastest? Amongst the poor and slaves. See, if we were sitting in a church building in the early church back then, I would probably be speaking to a congregation that was at least 50 to 60% slaves. In addition to all this, because so much of the church was made up of lower class people, they had almost no political authority in order to affect any kind of change. So really, Paul had two options. His option was, tell everybody that slavery is a horrible, horrible evil, and to revolt, or try to explain to them how in every circumstance and situation, you can still act like Jesus. You see, just a century before this book was written, there was the, 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 the famous slave rebellion by Spartacus. Does anybody know the story? You remember what happened at the end? See, after Spartacus' slave army was defeated... The remaining gladiators that were captured, they didn't put him back into slavery. They crucified every last man. And they lined the road to Rome with crucifixes. See, it's passages like this, even though sometimes it's tough to, it can be hard to, to extrapolate meaning from this when we are 2,000 years removed from these particular events. It's why it's like I was saying earlier. It's why exegetical preaching can be really important. It's because oftentimes we we don't talk about this kind of stuff because we think it has no value to us, or we're not sure what the implications of it are, and it seems kind of bad. But the truth is, we need to talk about this because how many of you realize that if we were going straight by the Book of Proverbs, there are a lot of people in this room that are enslaved. I want to say this really clearly, though. Paul condemns enslavement in 1 Timothy 1.10, along with sexual immorality, lying, murder, and whatever else may be contrary to sound teaching. Not everything that the Bible talks about is being endorsed. God doesn't want you to be oppressed or imprisoned or whatever, but the truth is, is that no matter where your feet find you, there is a good way to act and there is a bad way to act. Does that make sense? The point of passages of Scripture that explicitly speak to slaves is not to reinforce their slavery, but to remind the believer that no matter what your life looks like, your responsibility is to act in a manner worthy of your calling. 
Let me put it this way. Here's the big idea. Jesus did not come to make you healthy and wealthy. He came to make you holy and blameless. The truth is, you can still be holy and blameless and still be a slave. Let me put it to you this way. You can be working a job that you hate and still be holy and blameless. I mean, come on. How many people in this room have ever kept a job that you despised because it paid the bills? Kind of, we've, we've all been there to one degree or another. See, I want to, I want to talk to that kind of slavery for a second. I want to talk to that kind of, that kind of reality. How, how, the truth is you don't have to raise your hand. Your boss might be behind you. But how many of you work currently in a toxic work culture? See, the problem with keeping a job that you don't like is that you usually act as though you don't like it. We tend in jobs that we, we, we don't care about or you know, things that we don't care about selling or, 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 or we're working for somebody that we don't respect and we don't care what they think about us. The problem is, is that we tend to not do nearly as good a job as we would if it was a place that we loved, right? Listen, I got to tell somebody in the room, even though as an American, you have the freedom to go find a different job, I got to tell somebody that your feet are still ordered by the Lord, which means there are times, I mean, somebody come with me. There are times where I have wanted to quit a job and God has flatly told me no. And I'm like, but I'm an American. I do what I want. Tell me, I, this is a terrible job, God. I don't like how you're providing for me right now. <laughs> oh, I stepped on somebody's toes. Okay. And I'd also, back to slavery, I just want to say this. I'd also like to point out that nearly every instance of slavery being abolished in the earth has come from Christians that actually decided to read their Bibles. Eventually, a true reader and student of Scripture must come to the conclusion that one cannot read that in the eyes of God we have equal value and then go ahead and keep treating people as though they don't. I got to remind somebody, though, back to the job thing. (laughs) I got to remind somebody. In everything that you do, you are not doing a job. You are reflecting Jesus. See, this is the point, actually, of this passage. The point of this passage is not so that we would read this and be like, Paul, you like slavery? What is the matter with you? No. Paul is saying, can I tell you, there are more important things than whether you are free or not in the flesh. The more important thing is that you are free in spirit. Some of us are looking for the perfect boss or the perfect job or the perfect team culture without realizing that we actually already have him. And we didn't find him, he found us. Look, I have to remind myself a lot, and it's not because I don't love my staff. We have an incredible staff. We worked hard to have a healthy staff culture. But I tell you what, there have been times where I have wanted to quit this job. Pastor Stephen, have you ever wanted to quit this job? No? Okay. Apparently I'm the only one. <laughs> no, listen, the truth is there are times, there are times in every job that you have, there are times in every place that God puts you where you're going to be tempted to just quit. I mean, even Jesus was tempted to quit. 
What did he say? He said, Father, if you can remove this cup from me, that'd be fantastic. But then how does he finish it out? But your will be done. Listen, I got to tell the person in the room that is bouncing from job to job to job because you are trying to find the perfect place to work. Friend, you're not going to find the perfect place to work. Listen, how many people in this room that have jumped around have found that there are more toxic cultures than healthy ones? That's my experience. And I can tell you that the Bible never told me that I'm to bring light into light places. It said that I'm to bring light into dark places. Listen, can I tell you how annoying light can be? Guys, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of, a, of an outlier probably amongst millennials. I don't have all of my alarms on my phone. I actually still have an alarm clock. Still have an alarm clock. I mean, it's digital, so I upgraded, you know. But you know, the thing I, I, I hate the most about that alarm clock, it's the light. Because you know what happens is, is I wake up at four o'clock in the morning and I turn over and it mocks me. It mocks me because I woke up an hour and a half before my alarm and now I'm not going to get back to sleep. And I just get to sit there and watch the time drip away. Dude, The worst. But I mean, come on, is anybody with me? When you wake up in the morning, you turn that light on the first day, you don't say, ah, hallelujah. No, what do you say? Ah, ah, gosh, did that thing get brighter? Did you put like, <laughs> the truth is, is that the light is annoying to people who have been living in darkness. But the truth is, is that the longer that you live with the light in front of you, the more you come to crave it. Preaching now. (laughs) See, it's in the circumstances where we're in a place we don't want to be and God won't let us leave. That our posture is so important because, friend, Lisa, you know what I'm talking about. It is so easy to reflect Jesus in an environment that's conducive to it. Like when everybody else is like, yeah, man, I love this job. It's a lot easier to like your job, isn't it? You know how you start not liking your job? Get around people that are complaining about theirs all the time. And Fred, Force, you know exactly what I'm talking about. How easy is it to look just like everybody else that's working with you? It is a heck of a lot harder to be a light in a dark place than a light in a light place. Because the expectation in a dark place is that you'll be dark too. But in a light place, I'm wondering, why aren't you lit up, man? What's going on with you? Now, I got to tell somebody in the room, before you start saying to yourself, well, Pastor Joel, you work at a church. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Elephant in the room. Elephant in the room. There are a lot of toxic and unhealthy churches out there. Straight up. This is, the the church is not all that, okay. I love the church. The church is beautiful. She's right across. But she can be kind of ugly sometimes. Even in a church like this, friend, I got to tell you, we have warred for this culture. We have battled for this culture. I have battled for this place to be healthy. 
Because that's what you do when God sets your feet there. Can I tell you the truth? I don't work for you. I work for him. See, listen, if I worked for you, I just tell you what you want to hear all the time. Because it is a lot easier to keep people happy when you agree with them. It is a lot, it's a lot easier to keep people happy when you say everything that you think they want to hear. But friend, I got to tell you, my job is not to tell you what you want to hear. My job is to tell you what you need to hear. <laughs> okay. I want to give you four brief points and we're going to talk about kids for a moment. A couple of things to remember is you're posturing yourself in a place where you don't want to be, but God doesn't seem to want to let you out of it. First of all, can I tell you, once again, you don't belong to you. If you're in Christ, he didn't just buy your sin, he bought your life. That is it's so countercultural sometimes to Americans because we're just like, we're so free will oriented. And I love it. This is an incredible country. But at the same time, sometimes it can be very difficult for me to separate my politics from my actual life. And realize that there are things that I believe about politics that actually don't mesh up at all with my life in Jesus. Because I can have an opinion on this or have an opinion on that. But ultimately, if I start getting into a place where I'm dictating to God what I'm going to do with my life, I have forgotten I have been bought with a price. Sometimes what we do is we think about the price, but we don't think about the actual purchase. We think about how much it costs Jesus to forgive my sin. We think about how much it costs Jesus to raise me up. We think about how much it costs Jesus, but we forget that part of the actual thing was that he bought my mind, will, and emotions. I am a bought man. Not bought by a human agency, but bought by the Lord. I don't get the choice. When God tells me to stay, I stay. When he tells me to go, I go. But I don't go of my own accord. Here's why this is important. I'm going to give you a couple of a couple of thoughts to help posture yourself when you're in a place you don't want to be, but God will not let you leave. Isn't I'm sorry? Isn't that annoying, dude? That is annoying. God doesn't doesn't let me do whatever I want to do all the time. I have I have informed him a number of occasions that I'm an American, and I live in Idaho. He doesn't listen. Yeah, anyway. He doesn't listen to me. Number one, remember who you really work for. Remember who you really work for. Listen, you do not work for the Newport School District. You don't work for Super One. You don't work for, you know, yourself. You're not in business with yourself. You work for Jesus. I want to say it to this. You don't work for whatever it is you think you work for. You work for Jesus. If you are in Christ, he bought everything, including your work life. Remember, number two, who really pays you? Remember who really pays you. See, this is a tough one because, you know, like I said, there, there, there's things that we know intellectually and we believe intellectually. And then we think to ourselves, yes, I know that God is my provider. And yet I work really hard. You do work really hard and God is still your provider. I got to tell somebody in the room, you are not paid by your business. Primarily, you are paid by Jesus. It is him who provides for you all of your needs, even if you're working for them. 
Number three, remember who really sees your work. I think this is one of the most important ones right here because so many of us are in job situations that we don't like, not because they're just the most terrible place in the world, but because nobody sees me and nobody appreciates me. I work in a thankless job. You know, I talked about this a number of weeks ago. If you, if you weren't here for it, I really, pre- I, I really encourage you to go back and listen to the message that we did called I Am Appreciated. Because so many problems of the heart... So many problems of the Spirit come from the fact that most of us don't feel like anyone appreciates what we do. When Paul, as he's he's speaking to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, he goes and he talks about how, how, how appreciative he is of their faith. We believe that the Bible was created by what we call plenary verbal inspiration, which means that every word of Scripture, every word of Scripture was God breathed. That God spoke to the writers of Scripture and that they wrote it in context. They weren't like passed out in a, you know, in a cave somewhere. They didn't get high on peyote and just start like writing whatever came to their mind. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit spoke to human authors using their agency and their personalities and yet communicated entirely perfectly to human authors. Even though we know that the Bible was not written to us, We know that the Bible was written for us. So when we have a passage of scripture in which Paul is talking to the Ephesians and saying, I appreciate you, what what, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today is that if you love Jesus and you love his church, God appreciates you. He doesn't just love you, he values you. No job is is thankless for the believer. Because if we recognize, if we recognize who really sees our work, if we recognize who really sees what we do and rewards us accordingly, then even in a job that we're not sold on, we can reflect him well. I said this in the first service. Maybe I shouldn't have said it. I'm going to say it again. (laughs) If you're... If you're coming into church and changing your attitudes, changing your behaviors, and changing your patterns so that you think believers around you don't realize there's some issues, friend, i I got to be honest with you. I really wish you would misbehave in church and behave at your workplace because actually it's more important what they think of you than what I think of you because I'm not your mission. Can I say that a different way? I'm not the person you're trying to win. Your, your, your mission is, the mission of, uh, of the church is not to go to church and look good. Although, hey man, you guys look good. Nicely done. The, church, the mission of the church is not to look good in church. The mission of the church is to reflect Jesus everywhere you go. Number four, remember who really sees how you treat people. I am not omniscient. I know. I am not omnipotent, and I am not everywhere. Jesus is, though. Now, this is like, here's the thing. It's like, I don't want to, I want this to come across like, God sees every terrible thing that you do. Ah! 
But I do want you to understand, sometimes it, it's, those, it's those places where we feel lowest. It's those times that we feel like, man, nobody appreciates me. Nobody cares. Nobody does this. Nobody does that. That's when we start slipping. But actually right there is where we can turn to Jesus and receive appreciation. Where we can turn to the Lord and receive affection. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift gears real quickly and we're going to talk about children and parents. It's interesting that Paul actually addresses children in this passage instead of just parents. The assumption was that the children were also listening to the words of the apostle. And I need somebody to understand this scripture isn't written to the world, it's written to the church. The, the reason why this is important is because Sometimes when we start talking about parents and family, people that have grown up in functional, normal households are able to say to themselves, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. My parents are really smart. My parents are really good people. They're righteous. They're, they do good things with their money. They're, they're just, by and large, they're awesome. The hard thing is, is that when you're a person who has grown up without godly parents and you read children obey your parents because this is right you might think to yourself um, I don't know that you really know what my parents did to me was I supposed to be obedient in witchcraft was I supposed to be this no I want to friend I want to tell you that when scripture talks about obeying your parents it's talking about it insofar as it does not disobey God there's not a single good parent in the room that would tell you that if your mom and dad, you know, at 16 years old, decide, hey, man, why don't you just go ahead and get drunk, that you should do that. There is, there is a certain level in line that you have to be able to say, my, over, my, my, my obedience is to Jesus. And if what you're doing is asking me to break that, I can't obey that. But the truth is, for those of us in the room that have righteous parents, dude, I remember being 15. Oh, 15-year-olds. God bless you. I remember being 15. I remember thinking that I had it all figured out. I remember thinking my parents were old-fashioned. I remember thinking... I got... I remember thinking and not really thinking, I guess is probably what I'm trying to say to you. See, the implication of when, when, when Paul is saying... Children, obey your parents, for this is right, and this is the first commandment that comes with a promise, right? What is he saying? The promise is that you will live long in the land. He's saying this is not just a spiritual promise. This is an actual physical one. Learning to obey your parents is going to teach you how to obey godly authority. Learning to obey your parents is actually going to legitimately help you not die, you see, if my, if my kid runs into the road and has not learned how to obey my voice, and I say, get out of the road, and then they don't move and get hit by a car, they're not going to live very long in the land the Lord has given them. Obedience to your parents trains you in righteousness. See, there are things that my parents asked me to do that I did not understand at all why they asked me to do it. Because as a kid... Even though I want every explanation, most of the time I didn't actually understand every explanation. I mean, come on, guys. Like, how many things in your adult life do you now understand that your parents asked you to do, and at the time when they explained it to you, that you were just like, that sounds dumb. 
dude, friend, young man, young woman, for the love of heaven, obey your parents. Not because they're always right, but because most of the time they're right. And even when they're wrong, even when they're wrong, your obedience is counted as righteousness for you to the Lord. See, even then, by obeying your parents, you are signaling to the world around you that I serve a higher master even than my parents. Because I'm going to obey because God has told me to obey. I'm going to work hard because God has told me to work hard. And I'm going to be appreciated by him and I'm going to be rewarded by him. For the person maybe in the room that either you're living right now with ungodly authority. When I say ungodly, I don't mean because you disagree with them, they're ungodly. I mean literally, they are not believers. They're actively, you know, actively involving you in sin. For those of you that are dealing with ungodly authority right now, man, I want to encourage you. And those and, and ultimately those those that have dealt with it in the past. Can I tell you how we honor our parents? How do you honor your parents when it feels like there's nothing honorable about them? See, because sometimes what we think is honoring means posting on Facebook how much I love mom and how great she was and how incredible she is and all this kind of stuff. Can I tell you what honoring your parents looks like when they've not lived honorably? It's by refusing to judge them and being determined to look nothing like them. Listen, if you're, if, if you're a child of, uh, of a family that seems like every single, every single marriage ends in divorce, you honor your parents by ending the cycle. If, if, you're, if you're a child who has grown up in a family where it seems like addiction is your story, you honor your parents by ending the cycle. The chain breaks with me. The chain breaks with you. You know, my dad... <clears throat> My dad has, has mentioned this a number of times. And one thing he said is he said, you know, every single, like every single person in, in my family, every marriage had ended for generations. For generations, every, every marriage, every, it all ended in divorce. And he said, my determination to honor my family wasn't to, you know, be upset at them. My determination was, I'm going to love them, I'm not going to judge them, and I'm going to be nothing like that. Because that story from now on is not, going to, it's not going to include me. Here's where I'm closing up. In all interactions, our behavior should reflect the ultimate rewarder. See, this is the last portion of Scripture before the full armor of God is a reminder that in any season of life, no matter whose authority you're under, your higher Lord is your greatest consideration. How many of you have ever traveled abroad and been judged for being an American? We don't have a great name, to be honest with you. Most, especially in Europe, um, most, most people assume that all tourists that come from America are loud, uh, they're obnoxious, they're poor tippers. I mean, ultimately, they just kind of don't like us very much. And that's the result of some of our brave forebearers really blazing a trail of greed 
really blazing a trail of obnoxious behavior. The thing is, we still have to deal with that, right? Here's the thing. Everywhere that you go, you are a, represent, a representative of another nation. You're not, and, I, and it's not an American one, by the way. Everywhere that you go, everywhere that you go, you are wearing the Jesus flag on your shoulder. Everywhere that you go, whether you're at work, whether you're in the store, doesn't matter where you're at. If people know that you call yourself a Christian, then what they're looking at is they're wondering if you actually represent this nation well. See, going back to where Paul was coming from, is he saying, listen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're being oppressed. The more important thing is how are you reflecting Jesus in situations you can't change? It would be so easy for us to groan and complain every time that something happens out of our power or control. But the reality is, is that it's actually more important what you look like in the storm than it does the sun. You see, Paul actually, Paul actually said it right here in Philippians 4, 11 to 13. And this is kind of like one of those passages of scripture that people just like throw out there for, you know, like random stuff. Like, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm doing another mid-level marketing thing. So, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is not the context of what Paul's talking about. What he says is this. He says, I don't say this out of need for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able. Somebody say, I'm able. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. If you find yourself in freedom, walk worthy of the call. If you find yourself in oppression, walk worthy of the call. If you find yourself in poverty, walk worthy of the call. If you find yourself in plenty, walk worthy of the call. Wherever it is that your feet find you, wherever it is, whatever the circumstances that have led to whatever you're in right now, what I can tell you is that we have the responsibility to learn the secret of being content in every situation. It doesn't lessen the problem. It doesn't make it any less bad or good. But the reminder is that no matter where I'm at, my goal, my goal is to look like Jesus. My goal is to reflect him well. This is actually what Peter was talking about when, I believe it's in 1 Peter, he says, have an answer for the hope that you have. Sometimes we think that what that means is we're going to live a godly life and people are going to ask us why. That's actually not what Peter's talking about. What he's talking about is when you're beaten for the gospel, when you're oppressed, when you're spit on, when people hate you, when they take you to kill you, you need to give an answer for the fact that you're not screaming and crying and freaking out. You know what one of the most antithetical things in all culture has ever been? Early Christians being taken to the cross and singing psalms. Having happy faces. These Roman guards were literally asking that question. They were like, what is wrong with you people? We're literally taking you to kill you. Why do you have hope? Because my hope is not rooted in my circumstances. It's rooted in him. Come on, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you for the hope that we have in you. I thank you that our circumstances don't have to dictate, don't have to dictate our countenance. That we can be the same people in the sun that we are in the storm. We can be the same people in poverty that we are in wealth. We can be the same people in sickness as we are in health. And it's not for any other reason than that our hope is rooted in you, not in us, not in what we can do, not in what we've earned, and not what we could gain or lose. But we thank you that in Christ, we have received everything that we need for a life of godliness. God, I pray this morning over this, over this people. God, I pray for the person right now that is really struggling with their work and you're not letting them out of it. God, I pray that, I pray right now that you would help them to, to, to change the way that they view what they're doing. God, help them to see the mission instead of the problem. God, help them to see, help them to see what you, what you actually have for them there. If they're there, they're there on purpose. And God, I just pray that there would do, this would be a time where you would open up their eyes to see the harvest field around them. Jesus said it this way as, 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 as crowds were streaming to him, he said, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are so few. Pray then that the Lord of the harvest would send out more workers.